0: Well, hey, have you ever heard the saying, God helps those who help themselves? You ever heard that? How many of you go, oh, well, that's in the Bible, right? Eh, not in the Bible. If you hear that saying, you hear somebody say, yeah, you know, doesn't the Bible say God, God helps those who help themselves? That's what the Bible says, right? That, that's, what, that's what he says. No, it doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. Now, does does God reward our responsibility? Does God expect us to be responsible and to, to work and to do that? Yeah, absolutely. But the idea that God only helps those who help themselves, think about that. If that were true, how helpless would our God be? If the only people he helped were the people who could help themselves, he wouldn't be helping me because I know how to help myself most of the time. Probably not you either. I mean, he, he would be more helpless than we are. But the truth of the gospel is this, that that not that God only helps those who help themselves, but rather Jesus solely helps those who are utterly and absolutely helpless. That's the truth of the gospel. The people that Jesus helps, the people Jesus saves are those who are utterly and absolutely helpless. Everyone, everyone. So keep that, with that truth in mind, turn to John chapter 5 this morning, and uh, that's where we're going to be, is in John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. And uh, while you're turning there, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive into the text and see what the Lord has for us this morning. Father, thank you for Jesus, and thank you for your grace to us. Uh, uh, Lord, uh, I look forward to seeing how you teach through your text to me this morning, even as I teach. And being reminded that, that you help those who are helpless, that you're, um, you're the savior of those who are weak, and that when we're weak, you make us strong. Uh, make that truth very clear to us this morning. Help us see your power in saving and redeeming and healing us and our mere responsibility of, of responding to your grace. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. And in fact, we're totally and utterly helpless. So I pray that that truth would ring uh, home for us this morning, Father. I pray for those who've never trusted your son Jesus with their life, that today might be the day they would do that. And for those of us who have, that you'd remind us again and give us a fresh view of your grace and your love toward us. Holy Spirit, fill me and speak through me and to me as I teach. And I pray against the enemy his servants, their works and effects. He he would accuse us and lie to us and twist your word, but instead teach us make us more like your your son Jesus. Father, we love you. We thank you that you love us first in Jesus, and we pray all this through him. Amen. John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews. After this, whenever you see that, you've got to look back in the text, see what was going on before, and specifically in the book of John, at least. John kind of skips ahead to different points in time. He had just finished uh, speaking of Jesus with the woman at the well and, uh, and some other things. And then in, in the chronology of it, though, we've seen Jesus with Matthew, the tax collector, and uh, we've seen him uh, basically starting to initiate the ministry phase, the ministry training phase of his ministry. And so now there's another feast of the Jews. Well, what could this be? Well, it could have been Passover. It could have been the Feast of Tabernacles, something like this. Because we know for this feast, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Remember, when you read up in the Bible, a lot of times it's not, well, most, every time it's not north like we think up on a map, but it's up in elevation. Jerusalem was a city on a hill. And so they would have went up to Jerusalem. And all Jewish males were required to come to Jerusalem to attend three feasts. The Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Bread, the Feast of Weeks, also called Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So it's one of these three. I tend to believe, based on a chronology that, that we're using, and we're kind of teaching from this perspective, that Jesus is back again for a second Passover, this time in Jerusalem. Well, John gives us some clues of what's going on here. Now, now, there is in Jerusalem, he says, by the Sheep Gate, a pool. In Aramaic, called Bethesda, which, is, which has five roofed colonnades. Let's unpack that a little bit. In Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate. All the cities in that day, or really in the Old Testament, uh, their main defense from uh, people who would intrude and come in was a wall around the city. And in fact, Jerusalem, after they had been besieged and God's people, all of Israel, been taken into Babylon, uh, you you read in Nehemiah that Nehemiah comes back and begins to rebuild the city. And what's the first thing he builds? The walls. And actually, you know where they start building the walls? At the sheep gate. You can read about it in Nehemiah chapter 3. And, and this is the place where they begin rebuilding the walls of the city. Now, by Jesus' day, the city had, there were still things that would happen outside the city walls. Agriculture would happen there. But in any times of siege, you'd run inside the city walls. Well, the city had grown by this time, and so it was, it was larger than these original walls. But these walls now formed the entrance into old Jerusalem and where the Temple Mount would have been. And, and this gate specifically is called the sheep gate because it's believed that through this gate, uh, likely sheep for the different sacrifices at the temple would have been brought through. Well, let's call it the sheep gate. That's where all the sheep come in, right? That made the most sense. And if you have a map in your Bible or anything, I don't have one for you this morning, but it's on the northeast corner of, of the temple, of the temple mount. So he goes through there, and near that gate, though outside of it, was a pool, How many of you are like, "Uh, pool, that's what I need, right? That's what I could have used this last week when it was like 90 degrees on Friday. I'm going to go to the pool by the Sheep Gate. Well, at this pool, too, there's five roofed colonnades. In other words, five covered porches with uh, large columns. And and people would have lounged here and and relaxed here. But what we're going to find out is at, at this area, at this pool, the place of Bethesda, it was called, Um, Look at verse 3. In these lay a multitude of invalids. They would have been in the colonnades, in the covered porches, laying around the pool. They were blind and lame and paralyzed. A lot of people who couldn't do what? Help themselves. A lot of people who were totally and utterly helpless because of some of their conditions. Things sometimes maybe that they had done uh, choices they had made that had maybe caused this, the, the consequence. Otherwise, where it's just simply a trial because of, for whatever reason, that's what God has allowed to happen in their life. And with the consequence, what do you do? You repent and you turn back to God. With a trial, what do you do? You embrace it and you trust God. And in any case, though, these, these colonies are filled with people who are helpless. Well, curiously, Bethesda, that name means house of mercy. And if anybody needed mercy, if anybody needed grace, it was the people who were here. It's curious that, as we're going to see, there's a multitude of sick people here, but what I want you to notice as we get going, or at least keep in the back of your mind before we get there, is that Jesus only heals one of them. He only heals one. Does that seem fair? doesn't i mean on a, on a, you think why doesn't he heal everybody I, I don't know sometimes it's so that we can go and be his hands and feet and care for people and encourage them and care for them and love them for for whatever reason he only heals one person well would somebody look at your bible and read verse four for me what 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 huh are you looking do you find it Who doesn't have verse 4? You're like, where's verse 4? What happened to my Bible? Well, here's the deal. In in the text, to give you a little history lesson here on on how the the Bible was put together, you want to learn more about this, come on a week from Wednesday. Dr. Rock LaJoya is going to be teaching that Wednesday evening about how we got our Bible, how it originated, how we know it's trustworthy, how we know that somebody didn't take away from it or add to it. Well, obviously, the copy of God's word that you have in your hand is a translation of the original, right? Originally, it would have been written in Greek and in Hebrew and in Aramaic. And uh, the original, original first ever copies are, are we, we don't have available to us. However, some of the earliest copies of the New Testament date within a couple decades of that original writing other old writings that people look at and they go, oh, there's no doubt that like this was Homer, for instance, like Homer wrote this. And the closest thing we have to an original manuscript that he actually wrote is is hundreds of years away from it. Yet the New Testament, we may not have the original copy here that John wrote, but we have a copy within a couple decades of when he wrote it, which is pretty incredible because they didn't have the cloud to store it in. They they didn't have they couldn't like put it on PDF and email it and, and back it up and it, it it was just a physical copy and, and there wasn't a Xerox machine. You had to copy it by hand to pass it down to the next generation. Well, as these would get copied down in some manuscripts, if you start to study this, you look at the manuscripts that are written out, the copies, one one, just so you know, there's like there are more copies in a closer range, and Doc Rock will explain all of this in a couple of weeks to you better than I do right now. But, but the Bible is utterly reliable. There, there are so, I mean, it, it pales in comparison, the amount of copies of manuscripts and their accuracy with one and other versus any other historical writing that you look at. And people go, oh, yeah, that's for sure historical. That, that guy really wrote that. And that, then we doubt the Bible and we say, I don't know if the Bible is true, though, but, it, but I'm telling you, the accuracy there. If I'm losing you, come back on the 17th. Doc Rock will hook you up, okay? Come check it out. But here's the deal. When they would would write it by hand, every now and then, sometimes, in order to pass this on, they might write a note on the side explaining something. And sometimes, some of these notes would actually get included into the text, depending on who it was being copied for. Well, verse 4 in the book of John, the end of verse 3, actually, and verse 4 you probably have a footnote in your Bible that says what that would have said. Let me read it to you. It says, uh, Well, they would have been blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease that he had. Well, that little passage right there is on some manuscripts but it's not on the earliest manuscripts that we have so what's that tell you if it's not on the one from 20 years ago but it's on the one from third or from 10 years ago what's that tell you somebody added it in that time into that one from 10 years ago right so we look back to what's the earliest manuscript and most reliable and And that one does not have that text, so we don't include it in the Bible. But there's a footnote there, because I think what likely has happened is this was added to explain why all these invalids are laying around the pool. It helps explain why they're there. Otherwise, why are they laying around here? Do you ever wonder that? I mean, there would be no way to understand. The reason I believe that is when we get to verse 7. Did I thoroughly confuse you yet? A little bit? Hopefully not. But, but that's why that's not included in your text. Somebody didn't just go, ah, eh, we don't like it and throw it out. But, but it's because of what the earliest manuscript was. Well, verse five. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. I'm 36 years old. He would have been an invalid since 1976 if he was sitting there today. How many of you never... How many of you saw 1976? We'll say it that way. Right? Can you imagine? He had been there as an invalid for 38 years. He was paralyzed. He was stuck. He had no hope. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time... Verse six says, notice this in verse six, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there. This guy had sat there for for almost four decades and likely people had walked by him every day, maybe ignored him every day. Maybe he felt like I'm here by myself. I'm alone. Nobody knows the way I'm suffering. And maybe he's even at the point where I, I just, I don't care anymore. Forget it. I'll just lay here. But who knew? Jesus knew. Had Jesus ever met the man before? No. Not to our knowledge. Jesus shows up and he sees the man there and he says he knew that he had already been there a long time. Loved ones, what you need to know is that even when you feel alone, even when it seems like no one else knows what's going on, and maybe no one else does know what's going on, Jesus knows. He knows. And not only does he know, but he cares. Job puts it this way. I think I quoted this to you last week. But he, know, Job 21 verse 3. He knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I will come out as gold. Nothing catches God by surprise. Nothing does. Nothing escapes his eyes. None of your hurts. None of your sorrow. In fact, the Bible teaches and tells us that on the in the end... There'll be a day where 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 he does what? He wipes away every tear because he knows it all. He knows it better than you know it. And he loves you deeply. He loves you deeply. What well, was the same with this man? Jesus says to him, he looks to him and he goes, "Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed?" Put yourself in the spot of this guy. You've been lying there for almost 40 years. And some guy comes up and goes, do you want to be healed? How would you respond? I've gone back and forth on how I might respond to that this this week. I thought, I might go, well, duh. (laughs) Come on, what do you think? I might be, but on the other side, have you ever gotten into a spot where You've been stuck in whatever it is, in your hurt, in your suffering, whatever it is for so long that it's just like, that's just life now. And you kind of acclimate to it. And, and you even, if you're honest, and if you really think about it, there's some things sometimes that you do to even self sabotage yourself because you found your identity in your suffering. And so when someone offers to help, it's like, you're like, come here, come here, come here, get away, get away, get away and i wonder if maybe that's the response this man felt when jesus says do you want to be healed And he's like sure <laughs> yeah okay go for it jesus I-, I don't know where he was at but the thing is here the question may be for you this morning do you want to be healed And the thing to recognize in the gospel, I said that the truth of the gospel is that Jesus only, he solely helps those who are utterly and absolutely helpless. And the first thing he does in the gospel is Jesus takes the initiative and he makes the offer. Jesus makes the offer. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be changed? Do you want to be made new? Loved ones, that's the offer of Jesus Christ to you, your creator to you. Do you want to be new? Do you want to be healed? And he initiates it. Well, the sick man, verse 7, answered him and said, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. See, whether or not... uh, I I don't believe verse 4 is part of the original text. Like I said, I think that's probably a footnote added to explain what was going on or the beliefs of what was going on. But it's clear that that was a reality for those people there that, that they believed that once the water got stirred up, whether by somebody putting their foot in and stirring it or to their belief an angel coming and stirring it, but maybe it was simply just a spring underneath it that would have stirred the water and certain superstitions would have possibly arise towards, oh, is, is an angel doing this? And, and maybe that's a possibility. I don't think so. But maybe that's a possibility. In any case, they believed that when that water got stirred, that's how I could get healed. You know what the, You know what it is? It's if I do this, <laughs> then I'll be made right. Then I'll be healed. If I can just do it myself and get myself there, then God will heal me. But that's helping yourself. The truth of the gospel is that Jesus solely helps those who are utterly and absolutely helpless. You can't save yourself. You can't help yourself in that way. You need Jesus Christ to save you and help you and make you new. And he makes that offer. And the sick man answers him. He goes, well, well, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water stirred up. How many of you, when you hear the offer from Jesus, hey, I'll make you new. I'll give you new life. You'll be healed. And you go... Yeah, I've heard that before and I've tried so hard and 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 other people have tried to help me and you don't you don't get it. No one can help me. You don't get it. I mean, and then when I feel like I'm finally starting to get my feet under me and, and I'm getting some help, you know what happens? Somebody cuts in line in front of me and totally cuts out my legs from underneath me and it all falls apart again. I tried so hard. <laughs> He's not going to help me. He may make that offer to everybody else, but it's not to me. Trust me, I've screwed it up too much. And this man, when Jesus says, "Would you like to be healed?" He goes, "Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up." And and while I'm going, another one steps down before me. They, they, it, it, nothing works for me. <laughs> nothing works. After thirty eight years this man's problem had become a way of life, I believe, and no one had ever helped him, at least according to him, in his eyes. And he had no hope then of ever being healed, no desire to help himself. Yet Jesus found the one who couldn't help himself. And Jesus would find you, and he makes the offer to you. Would you would you like to be healed? Jesus said to him get up take up your bed and walk get up grab your bed grab your mat and walk what would that guy have thought when he heard those words from Jesus "Um, you know I can't walk right that's why I'm laying here what do you mean get up you don't think I would have gotten up by now I wonder if there's a little more to the conversation. Jesus is like, "Come on, come on, get up." And and he slowly gets up and puts one foot under the other and is like, "Whoa, wait a second. Or or maybe it was something where physically he saw his body healed. How incredible would that have been? And in the crowds there the the guy gets up, he stands up, he walks. And what you need to know is not only does Jesus make the offer, but Jesus is the one who does the healing. Jesus is the one who saves. Jesus does the healing. Right? He makes the offer, and guess who that offer is contingent upon? Not you, it's on him. He makes the offer, your only, I'll skip ahead here, your, your only responsibility here is to respond to his grace because you have no hope apart from him. Jesus is the one who saves, he initiates and he heals. But curiously, he didn't probably heal the way this guy might have expected. When, when, when Jesus makes this offer, maybe he's thinking, oh, you're, are you going to pick me up? You're going to help me? You're gonna, and Jesus like, I'm going to do something so much better than that. I'm going to make you totally new. Totally new. And he heals him, and he stands up. He takes his mat. Well, at once, look at verse 9, the man was healed. And he took up his bed, and he walked. Now that day, it says, was the Sabbath. That's a key here, because of what's going to happen next. The Sabbath would have been a Saturday. It was the seventh day of the week. It was the day uh, that God had rested from creation, and so He commanded us to take a day to rest every week. Well, the Jews had taken this to an extreme, and when you see the Jews in the Gospel of John, what it really is is the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders. So, when so the Jews, the religious leaders, said to the man who had been healed, "It's the Sabbath." It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. What are you doing carrying that around? Totally oblivious to the fact that this guy hadn't walked in 40 years. They were so caught up in their to-do list and in their rules and in their regulations. And if you, man, you got to get it right. And then God would heal you. And he's like, oh, you already healed me. (laughs) He already did it. I didn't do anything. And it, that is such a hard thing for us to believe because our default is always to be like the Pharisees. It's my default. It's your default. It's like, what can I do to help myself? What can I do to make it right? What, and that's a healthy thing in terms of responsibility, but it's not in terms of your sanctification and your salvation. Jesus is the one who initiates, and he's the one who does the healing and the changing of your life. Well, what's even funnier, if you really start to study this, is that the action of carrying your mat was not forbid in the Old Testament. There was nothing that would forbid you in the Old Testament in God's law of carrying something with you on the Sabbath. This was something that was added later by the religious leaders in a list. I have the name of it here. Um, the Tradition of the Elders the tradition of the elders and they had this and they had 39 specific rules that you couldn't do on the sabbath but none of them were in the bible none of them were they were all just man-made rules now was the intent good the intent was good but human intention left by itself comes up with all kinds of absurdity Chrysostom has a quote similar to that, a church father, and basically saying, human intention left on its own will come up with all kinds of divine nonsense or divine intended nonsense, something like that. That's my paraphrase. And and they had all these rules. And here's, here, listen, here's the idea. Here's the motivation. It's like, here's the fence God provides, you know, around it. And God says, you know, have freedom in that. Actually, it's a lot bigger fence than that. But here's, your, here's freedom. And what they would do is, God says, don't touch the fence. And so they would build a smaller fence inside of it. We'll say, don't even touch this fence. Then you won't even come close to God's fence, right? Because if you, if you go here, then you won't even come close to that. And you won't. But that became so constrictive that they had rules that weren't in the Bible. And that's one that they're imposing on this man today. Saying, you can't carry your mat on the Sabbath. But God's word didn't say that. Loved ones, when we come up against tradition versus God's word... And what do we do as a church or as individuals from our conscience and God? You always have to look to the Bible and say, where does it say that in Scripture? Okay, I respect your opinion. That's great. Let's talk about this. But does it specifically say we can't do that in Scripture? And if it doesn't, then we need to agree to disagree and agree that it's just a matter of conscience. And for you, maybe, okay, don't do that. But for me, I have freedom to do that because it's not in God's word. Does that make sense? And that's the case here. Well, he answered, ba- he answered them. They, they, well, they said, you know, who told you it's Sabbath? It's not awful for you to take up your bed. And the man goes, well, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. I was told just, he healed me and then he told me, he said, take, take your bed and walk. Now the religious leaders here, do you remember that phrase from a few weeks ago? In Mark chapter 2, there were some friends of this guy who was also paralyzed. And what they do? Jesus is teaching in a house. The house is packed. And they come and they climb up on the roof. And they pull away the top of the roof and they lower him down in front of Jesus. And what's Jesus? Tell that guy. First he says, your sins are forgiven. And then what's he say? Take up your mat and Walk. He said the same thing here. It makes me wonder were some of the same religious leaders present when they heard this guy say, well, the guy who told me to take up my mat and walk, he told me just take it and go. The one who healed me if they went, he's back that, oh, that Jesus messing up our lives, right? I wonder if that was their response. And they asked him, well, who is this man then that said to you, take up your bed and walk? What says, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. It's very reasonable to think that with all of the people crowded around this pool, all the invalids, all those who were hurting and paralyzed and weak, that Jesus, after healing him, had slipped away. Or just the man in his exuberance of what had happened forgot to pay attention to who it was that had actually healed him, or at least to get his name So I guess my encouragement to you is when God heals you, don't be so preoccupied with what he's done in your life not to thank him. Sometimes, you ever ever do that? You you pray for something to happen for so long and then it happens and you're like, yes! And you quit praying. (laughs) That should be when we pray more and we thank God for what he's done. Well, Jesus had withdrawn. There was a crowd in the place. Well, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. Remember, the Temple Mount was a huge area where people would have come to worship. And Jesus finds him there. And he says to him, I see you are well. You're doing good. You're looking good, man. You're walking around. No limp. You're doing really well, aren't you? You're you're totally healed. And Jesus says something kind of peculiar to him. He says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Sin no more. Isn't that a weird thing for him to say after he heals him? Some would say, well, maybe it's because, and we don't know. So any of these are possibilities. Maybe some of his infirmities, some of the things that had happened to him were because of sin in his life or things that he had done and either a consequence of his sin or discipline from the Lord because of his sin, waiting for him to repent. That's a very good possibility. I believe that happens today. Is that every single case? Hear me, no. But sometimes do I believe that God will send us different trials or things like that because of consequences, because of our sin to get our attention. Absolutely. There's other times, though, where he simply sends trials into our life. Trial just means to test, to test us. And and to test, not in the sense of pass-fail, but but test like to to sure up, to make sure that you have what it takes to endure, to build you up, to build your character, to build uh, your your behavior. And both are important. And in any case, whether Jesus is, is inferring that What had happened to him was because of his sin or not. The other possibility is he's saying, go and sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. Because if you think that 40 years was awful, sitting there alone, you have no idea what hell is like. Go and sin no more. Trust me. Repent of your sin. Turn from it. Turn to me. Because it'll, it'll be so much worse if you don't. And that's Jesus' call to us. Sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. See, the truth is, loved ones, that on this earth, those of you who know Christ, this is as close to hell as you will ever get. No matter how dark the trial, no matter how awful it gets, this is as close to hell as you'll ever get if you've trusted Jesus. The flip side of that, if you've never trusted Jesus... This is as close to heaven as you'll ever get. That's a sobering thought. Turn to Jesus Christ so that nothing worse might happen to you. Well, this man man went away, told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Sabbath. In a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about Sabbath again. So I'm not going to go into much detail here, but Sabbath is a day of rest and, and we need to be careful that we don't take it legalistically, but we use it as a day to rest and recover and worship God. And Jesus answers them though, curiously, and we'll, we'll probably refer back to this in a couple weeks. Jesus answers them. He says, my father is working until now and I am working. In other words, it may be the Sabbath. You may have your rules, but you know what? Even on the Sabbath, the Father's working. He's holding all things together. This place would totally blow apart if it wasn't for the staying hand of God's sovereignty. He's still working. And guess who else is working? I am. And what Jesus is doing here, we don't see it in the English and we don't see it in in our language very well. But really what he's doing is he's saying, the Father's working and I'm working right alongside him because I too am God. You're like, how do you know that, Josh? Josh. You seem like you're taking some liberties there. Well, look at the next verse. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Loved ones, there's there's only one person who can help you. And it's Jesus. And it's because he's God. He's sovereign. He's in control of all things. Nothing catches him off guard. He sees you. He knows where you've been. And even if you've been there for a long time, he cares. And he offers to you healing. And listen, that may not mean like the man in this passage where you'd be healed and get up walking and you're better later this afternoon. It might, but it probably won't. But you know what it does mean? It means he knows the way that you take. And when he has tried you and tested you, you'll come out as gold. And that in the end... He works out all things for your good if you've trusted him and love him. So if it's not good yet, as my wife likes to say, it's not the end. God's gracious. He offers to heal you. He's the one who does the healing. Your, your responsibility is to respond. Let's do that in prayer, and we'll do that in song together. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thank you that he's the one who, who initiates uh, coming toward us in love and caring for us. That he gives an offer of, of salvation and hope to, uh, to each one. Father, you're clear in your word. You so loved the world. You so loved those who you created that, that you gave to us your son. And you gave us an offer that whoever believed in him wouldn't perish but would have eternal life. Father, I pray for those in earshot of my voice that if they've never trusted you, that they would. They'd simply turn. They'd repent. They'd turn from themselves and from their sin to, to Jesus and, and his perfect righteousness and his sacrifice on the cross for their sin I, and, and be made new. I pray for, for those of us who have made that step, that we'd turn uh, daily from our sin and be reminded of who we are in Christ. That you love us, that you care, and that you're working. You're always working. Jesus, you are, even as the Father is working toward the end when we'll be with you for eternity. Help us trust you more. We love you. We pray all this through Jesus, our Savior. Amen.